0: Hi, I am McCall, and I am an alcoholic type 2. I have the same disease. I just don't get relief from the chemicals. My brain produces them. I don't have to pay. I call myself a blackout thinker, and I do blackout when I allow myself to imbibe on my thoughts. Poor me, poor me, poor me another think. In fact, I'll bet everybody in this room is sober right now. I bet we're a lot alike. Because basically, a sober alcoholic is me. I also study the big book. It is the source of my recovery. It is the source of my hope. And it was kind of the dragon I chased since I was a little girl. When I was approximately eight in uh, 1981, in October, I came home from school and my mother wasn't home. We lived in an all-black neighborhood and I attended a Jewish school. Neither black nor Jewish. And my name really is McCall. So basically, I was born terminally unique to an alcoholic, a single alcoholic, whose disease needs isolation, and I went with her. She was my person. Like, she got me. And I am maybe one of the few people who grew up, who wanted to grow up and be an addict. I did not want to grow up and be an Al-Anon because when I came home from school that day she wasn't home she wasn't home when I woke up the next morning and I walked to school and packed my lunch I was in like third grade and about halfway through the day I told an adult without the realization that they're mandated reporters and that officials get involved and I don't like officials any more than any of you do They freak me out, authority in general skits me out a lot, and they get involved. However, my mother was raised by two incredible human beings in Cleveland, Ohio. Her father, my grandfather, John Sanders, was an OBGYN there. They deliver babies. They deliver, he delivered half of child protective services in Cleveland, Ohio. So starting at a very young age I'm pretty sure I was God's favorite kid. I didn't go into the system. I went to a very ugly dark basement of a hospital where they flipped on lights not unlike these and some woman A candy striper, I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, sat with me until a bunch of really cool, grown-up-looking kids walked in, smelling like cigarettes, wearing their leather jackets, and I thought it was fabulous, and I wanted to be like them, so I kept coming back. While my mother was in the hospital that time for, I don't know, 30, 40 days, she went through detox. That was the first time I knew about when I was seven or eight. And um, I got exposed to the big book. She did the Joe and Charlie workshop when they were around in Cleveland, Ohio at the Hilton. Now, I spent most of the time in the pool, let's be real. But one moment I will never forget. I heard them reading the top of page 85 of the big book, and it talks about a position of neutrality. That's what I chase. I did not know what neutrality, what balance, what centering even looked like to the point that I didn't want it or convinced myself and others I didn't. Like it felt like I needed to drink kombucha and do Pilates or something, and that's just not who I am. I grew up with an alcoholic. I came home at 14 with a big tattoo on my chest. Because how else do you get through the haze? I learned to turn my volume up very loud. Um, My mom's a magical creature, like a unicorn, mythologically amazing. Beautiful in looks, in soul, in heart. Her generosity is unparalleled. She's a poet, creative, brilliant, smart, graceful. Except when she drank. And I would watch her stumble and slur, and she'd become more gregarious but less magnetic. And I think it kind of tainted me because uh, when I've tried to drink to the point where I could enjoy it I can't get past this. I am sure that I am not articulating, that I am slurring, I'm stumbling, I am acting like I saw her act and that's not relaxing and relieving to me. It intensifies my anxiety that I was born with. So I had a woman who picked me up every day from my Hebrew school and took me to an Alateen meeting while my mom was in the hospital for that month and a half. One day a week, I thought there were no Alateen meetings. I suspect strongly she just wanted to go to her home group so we would go to an Al-Anon meeting. Did not like that. They pinched my cheeks and called me sweetheart. No one swore. People cried. They were all Dowdy. They all looked like librarians to me, and they used gardening analogies so often it drove me nuts. I was like, can we use something other than gardening people? I'm like, nine. Uh, when my mom got out, though, I got to go to AA meetings and sit in the back of smoky rooms and do my homework filled with laughter and joy and gratitude and excitement and life. And I got to see what neutrality looked like. So I thought I needed to grow up and be an AA. There is still a piece of me that wants to be because it means I wouldn't serve above the group level in Al-Anon, but God has other plans, and it's his will, not mine at this point. The second time my mother went into the hospital, I was going into eighth grade. And I figured maybe it'd be a good idea to shave my head into a mohawk. I wanted to be seen. And when I walked into my grandparents' house, or actually when my grandmother walked into the kitchen and saw me, she didn't flinch. Like her eyes didn't even stay on me for a moment more than they normally would, and it pissed me off. I did it for an effect and I got no effect. And so I said, Grandma, you're not going to say anything. And she looked at me and said, what, what would you like me to say? I said, well, what's your opinion? And that woman looked at me and she said, I don't have one yet. Like, what do you mean you don't have an opinion? Like my head was, it was bad. It was really bad. She said, no, I'm having a reaction. I'm not comfortable enough to form an opinion yet. Would you like to take me? in an area where kids are wearing that hairstyle and then I can get more comfortable and tell you what I think of it on you? <laughs> that is not what I was looking for that day. Today it's what I'm looking for. She set an amazing example for me. She also, uh, my grandparents had money, he was a doctor. And they poured a lot of it into therapy for my mom, for me, rehabs. I think there have been 17. Most of the ones in Cleveland, Ohio, wouldn't accept her as of four years ago. Um, We'll see if we get to that part of the story. I I heard everything that was being said in Al-Anon meetings. But I tripped so hard over step two that I pretty much broke my face on step three and just kind of went past them. And what tripped me up was the idea of the God of my understanding. I used books and information as power as a kid. I spent a lot of time reading. And the Hebrew school was a Montessori school, so I liked big words because we didn't have to spell them right. And I got a lot of attention for that and all the finger-pointing I learned to do at my mom's disease, because people get that. Oh, honey, your mom's an alcoholic. I loved that. I loved that attention. I loved any attention I could get, because I felt like I was behind a one-way mirror and I could see all of you guys. But no one could really see me. So yeah, the volume went up. And what do you think that does to an alcoholic single mother? Mm Mm-hmm. My mom has written many letters to alcohol breakup letters. The woman has 112 24-hour chips. And I think it's incredibly admirable. I am not sure. I mean, honestly, I'm not sure I could have gotten up here with the dignity I just saw saying, I've been sober for less than a month. When people knew me, I would assume they have expectations I wouldn't be able to go back. So I greatly admire my mom, but she may be one of the unfortunates. I don't know that she can be honest with herself and therefore with anybody else. You can't bring something to a potluck you don't have. So when she went into the hospital the second time, my grandparents put me into a boarding school. The only boarding school near us was a Catholic school. (laughs) Smart AA's, you're making the connection. I went from Hebrew school to Catholic school. And I did work study while I was there in eighth grade. And I did work study in the cafeteria, which actually didn't look unsimilar to this and there was a man in a diaper on a cross and he looked anorexic and it looked like he might bleed in my salad and it freaked me out. I would just look at this thing and it scared me. It really weirded me out and I learned just enough to know that he abandoned the people who loved him. And I've got abandonment issues. So that wasn't the god for me. Checked it off, threw it out. I went through more faith walks than any single human being I've ever met, to the point where I studied swedenborgianism because Lois and Bill got married in the Swedenborgian church and her grandfather was a pastor. Wicca, shamanism, Lutheran, meth, I, literally. Name one, been there, done that. Threw it out, and the baby with the bathwater. Seeking this god of my understanding, and I understand a lot. I am a smart kid. Smart grown-up now, I guess, sort of. <laughs> and I couldn't find this god of my understanding. And then it started to dawn on me, if I understand God, how is it going to restore me to sanity? If I can't fix the disease with my diseased brain, but I can understand God, there's a problem in Dodge. I called it the Gomu for a long time, the God of my understanding, the Gomu. Ms. Shapiro, my sponsor at the time, asked me to give it a name. So for a while, I called it Sam, because Miss Gardner herself just said that as long as it's not you, McCall, it just can't be you. And I was like, okay, Sam. Why Sam? Sure ain't me. (laughs) But I did it out of rebelliousness, not out of need and want and love. And I've done a lot for the sake of rebelliousness. Some really fun stuff and some really harmful stuff. I am, as they say in our literature, irritable, restless, and discontent. Another place that says um, that we may be dominating. Uh, Yeah, been there, done that, probably have done it today. I never was able to find the relief that my mom seemed to get when she drank or took pills. And I craved it. The one place that I got to find it occasionally or it felt satisfying temporarily was in relationships. Because I felt like if they saw me as good or attractive or smart or funny, then maybe I am. Because when I look in the mirror, I couldn't see it. So I needed someone else to see it. However, this damned disease also tells me I don't want to be in a club that would have me as a member. So I tossed them with the other bathwater and I've hurt a lot of relationships. I would fight and fight and fight and manipulate and cajole and listen to their music and dress like they'd like. So they'd want me and then as soon as they did, I'd ditch. It wasn't satisfying. From that Catholic school, I went to Maine to boarding school for two years to a Quaker school. (laughs) Go figure. One thing they did there every morning, there was an hour of quiet time. You guys have my disease. You know what quiet does for our heads. It's like one of my heroes says, my brain is a dangerous neighborhood. I don't go there alone, especially at night. And first thing in the morning is an awful lot like night. It's too quiet, too many thoughts. To start my day, it was like I was under rocks before the first class. So I learned to keep busy and to keep loud because it would drown out all the noise at least somewhat. I became a doer, not a human being and I'm capable. I have been very successful with very little effort at a lot of things and it gives me kind of a survivor's guilt like, I don't feel worthy of it. I, don't, I know I don't deserve it. But I really still do think I'm God's favorite kid. The blessings that are bestowed upon me are stupid good. And it just made me feel less. So I would edit myself more to show you what I thought a person looked like that would deserve all the things I have. I often have put myself in situations around people who have less than me. Because again, when I look at them, I can see me. Not in the mirror, though. And I was still looking for this god of my understanding. The only time I remember getting a glimpse of it was when I was a little girl, I was watching um, Carl Sagan is a scientist, and he explains flatland, which is this concept of of dimensions. And if I drew a stick figure on a piece of paper and tried to talk to it, and it had reason and logic and could hear me, it wouldn't know what the hell was going on. It would think it's insane. There's no such thing as up. It can't see me. If I wanted to interact with that stick figure with consciousness, I would have to literally put my hand through the paper to cross its plane of dimension. What would the stick figure see? A dot that came out of nowhere and that gets bigger as it comes my wrist and then disappears? It would think it was going crazy. And I tried so hard to restore myself to sanity that I couldn't see anything outside of my perception if I can't hear a dog whistle it doesn't exist. I know x-rays exist because there's uh, ways to see them. But if I couldn't see them it's not real. And Sam or the Gomu quickly became surreal. It became a story. It's Holden Caulfield. It's myth. But I would always have this idea of neutrality and this dimensional interaction. Another thing I heard when I was pretty young in the big book is that the fourth dimension, that we get a pass to rocket into the fourth dimension. Now today I know you have to stand in line at the consulate to get your passport stamped with a visa and it sucks to travel sometimes, but getting there is worth it. I didn't know that at the time because I'm a rebel. At that Quaker boarding school, we had to study hall or study time between 7 and 9 p.m. I loved working. I loved learning. There were two hours a day. I would not do it. 7 to 9 p.m. <laughs> I mean, it's compulsive rebelliousness. If you tell me if I like you, and I'm feeling good about you, and you like Alanis Morissette, that's my favorite musician. If I'm not feeling good about you, I can't stand her. I mean, it's pervasive. It is not just to one person. It is my whole picture of reality changes based on who I'm talking to and how I feel about them, which usually is dependent upon what I think they think about me. And nothing could restore me to sanity because I couldn't understand God. At 25, I got in my car and drove, tried to do a geographic, drove as far west as I could until I hit water. And I still live in Los Angeles. And I thought that the distance would um, allow me to disentangle, become unimmeshed. No, it didn't. It made me think about it more often and wonder what was going on. So I knew I needed a program, and I was not going to Al Anon, damn it. And I couldn't qualify for AA or anything else. It seemed there were two programs that I figured I could go to. One's called ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families, which sounded like it hit the nail on the head and the other is Codependence Anonymous. But I could never find someone to go to a CODA meeting with me. (laughs) I've still never been to one. I swear, if that organization would just find drivers to come and pick us up, they'd be packed. (sighs) ACA, though, that worked. Dysfunction, addiction, yeah, that's my people. So I did it for three years, and I worked through their book. They read this red book. It's wonderful, really hits home. I worked through this yellow step workbook and filled out all the answers with a sponsor. And when I was all done, it was as if somebody found dirt under the grout around my tiles that I never knew was there. And I had done a lot of soul searching. I had done a lot of step work up to that. And there was all this dirt. And it sat there at the bottom of the toilet in me. And nothing flushed it. And this idea of neutrality kept coming back to me. I craved it. And I thought it's what we could find in alcohol or drugs or something. Like I could get blotzoed or whatever. Couldn't get past the head. And I didn't like to fall asleep because it meant I'd have to wake up the next day. And I dreaded it. Mornings have always been tough for me. Because of my disease, I think that I have to plan out my day with lists of all the things I need to do, my to-do lists, so that I can check them off in order. Make my bed, do this, do that. And it was, I was tired before I stepped out of my bed. I was exhausted. In the meantime, in Los Angeles, I met a man. I thought we were going to have a two-week fling because he was just dipping his pen in the company ink. Our first non-date was just we were going to get lunch for the office. And this boy looks at me and he said, so do you believe in Jesus? Uh, like, is he my Lord and Savior or something? <laughs> no, gosh, no. Oh, okay. Why? Why do you ask? Mm, Nothing. Mm, my dad's a pastor. Oh, where? Dallas. Both of my brothers are, too. Oh, that was intriguing. I don't know if I realized it consciously in that moment, but I may have. I thought I was going to ride his coattails into church, into faith, into family, into function. How, how um, successful do you guys think that goes? Yeah, I'm still married to him 20 years later. We have two children. Yeah, you spend a couple week with us and we'll see if you clap. <laughs> we have a 15-year-old son, Marley. Brilliant. But like idiot savant brilliant, like has on one sock and the other one in his hand and calls to find his other sock and can't find it, but can do calculus in eighth grade. And then Harper, our daughter, our firstborn. When I got pregnant, the one thing I wanted so bad was a boy. I mean to the point that at the YMCA I saw little boy penises on babies and I would cry when I found out that I had a daughter inside of me growing. I was sure maybe he was just not well endowed and they couldn't find it and it would come out as a boy. I had grown up in a relationship with my mom. A female-female mother-daughter relationships are whacked. Right? I mean, is there a daughter in here who doesn't feel that way? As magical as they are. I mean, undeniably, incredibly magical. They are complex. Women in general, I think, are pretty complicated beasts. So Harper, jo- <laughs> so Harper Joe was born in two thousand six. Um, I think my mom. I don't know. I, I I really did stop counting, not because I wanted to, <laughs> because I couldn't count that high. But I, I my mom had been in a lot of rehabs at that point. Uh, I'm going to back up just because this is kind of an endearing story that I've never shared. Um, when I got married, we got married in Los Angeles. Oh, here, this will give you glimpses into who I am. Two weeks, three weeks before our wedding, I was doing my research on how to have a good wedding, like good Al Anon does, and I was watching a wedding story on TLC at 2 o'clock in the morning when I couldn't sleep. Dangerous neighborhood. Don't go there alone. I wrote an email to TLC. I'm pretty sure verbatim it said, I'm getting married in three weeks, and you want to film it. My family is my mom, an alcoholic. His family, Dallas Bible Belt pastors, all of them. Please tape it. They did. And it's as funny, it's funnier than this, frankly. They interviewed my mom several times and you never hear her talk on the film. I also made my husband do dance lessons, three of them, for our first dance, because you can learn a dance in three lessons. Come on, it's dancing. No, 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 no. But we practiced. I probably convinced him, made him practice until about two o'clock in the morning the night before our wedding, till we had it down. Oh, I mean the whole thing. Like I was like, it was all like dips. It was complex. Go figure. The sweet kid, he did it with me. My mom didn't see it. She was at the mini bar, it's free. And you know, having a daughter today, I can only imagine how badly I'll wish I liked to drink at her wedding. If there ever was a time, I'd get it today. I didn't then, because I couldn't see past my nose. I couldn't really empathize with her as much as I related to her and wanted to be like her. I couldn't do it. I was too self-consumed because I spent a lot of time in my brain figuring out what to say and what not to say, what to wear, what to listen to, to smile or not to smile. It was a tough exhausting existence. So I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, or spent my formative years in Ohio. I'm still not sure I've grown up. Um, so we went back to Ohio for a reception, and I staged an intervention for my mother. What else do you do if your whole family's in town anyway? <laughs> and. It was justified. The caterer asked me if he should get more champagne because he brought 13 bottles and they were gone. In her closet, under her bed, in boots, everywhere. Her husband wrote her a a letter, like we all did. That might have been his first intervention, actually. And he said this is the last time. He had put her through many... Very nice establishments. I mean, I can read you all the Hazleton ads from here. Betty Ford, yep. Cottonwood, uh uh-huh. Promises, yep. Oasis, uh uh-huh. Laurelwood, yep. Been to all their family weeks, too. Um, And he said, if it doesn't stick this time, I can't be here any longer. Uh, That was almost 20 years ago. He hasn't seen her in 18 they're still married. Her, um, her access to financial um, stability has been profound. And it's kind of like somebody put a really nice cushion at her rock bottom so that she doesn't quite have to hit it. It's what she brought to the potluck, because it's what she had. So guess what I fed on? Money. It'll solve everything. I've had money. I've lived on the streets. I promise. My disease is not different in either a mansion or a hovel. My disease is constant and consistent and dependable and it makes sure that I'm not to the point where I knew that about myself. I knew a bunch of things about myself because I had done the steps. I knew that my main defect is I'm an instigator, a poker, a prodder. And I felt a great deal of shame about this. Today, I don't believe that I have defects. I actually don't believe anyone here does. Because I believe what Paul O. wrote. If you have a big book, fourth edition, pages 407 to 420 is Paul O.'s story. Paul O. says, nothing, absolutely nothing, happens by mistake in God's world. That means... Defects, that's like if there's an assembly line and there's an error, there's a mistake in the manufacturing. I don't buy it today. I believe we are all instruments for God. And that we have strings that play different notes. And you can tune them different ways. You can do an open D, whatever. I don't know enough music to keep up with this analogy long. We'll see how far I can carry it, (laughs) or he can. Um, I think I was tuning to of tune instruments for a long time. So I thought that was what it's supposed to sound like. Participation is the key to harmony if you're all tuning to the same chord. So when I would insert myself into healthier situations, it didn't feel very in sync. I felt like I was the discordious one. I'm going to come back to that idea, because I would like to tell you that at the beginning of COVID, my mom was in the, no, she had just gotten out of the hospital. In 2019, she fell again. And we're, you have to understand, I have Chief Robinson and Officer Mike Day on speed dial, and I'm on their phones. Officer Mike Day in Gates Mills, Ohio, his first day on the job as a police officer, he did a wellness visit to my mom. That was like 28 years ago. He now has her African gray and raises it. Because in 2019, she fell and hit her head on marble. And uh, she sent the EMS away. But God had other plans. There was a woman staying upstairs. I'm not even sure if my mom realized it most of the time, honestly. Who was in Al-Anon? I didn't even know that when I knew she was staying there. She called the EMS back. She went out and said, no, you have to take her. Something is weird. And she just wanted to go to sleep. And she flatlined in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. They intubated her and my mother and everyone in Cleveland, Ohio, if definitely Gates Mills and definitely Hotel Hillcrest, which is what we refer to the hospital. Her local hospital is called Hotel Hillcrest in our family because she spent more time there than she did at home. Um, They all know she's DNI, DNR. Since I was a little girl, I would wake up in the morning often and read the poem she had written. Poem, suicide note, you know, it's art. Who knows? Many a time. My mom has never wanted to live. She read me The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath in third grade every night. Is that my five minute warning? (laughs) Or am I supposed to dance? (laughs) I can do that. I've got a program I can flow. They intubated my mom and they called me and they said, McCall, it's time to come. Come say goodbye. At the time, I was like, oh my gosh, this just came back to me. At the time, I was praying the paratroopers prayer. I don't know if anybody here has ever read this. I don't recommend it. It is the most punk rock prayer. It's like, God, I know you Everyone asks for wealth and health and comfort. I want none of these things. I want trouble and strife. And the attitude to face it with. Because I'm so punk rock and tough. That's what I prayed. I should probably tell you that I, I don't know that I surrendered, but I submitted temporarily to go to Al-Anon meetings after ACA because of that dirt that just sat there and it was desperate to flush it. It was really bothersome. Just these things in my mind that I hadn't thought about or considered or even acknowledged were there and experiences I had had that were gone to me and they got dredged up like somebody was picking at scabs or something and I needed something. First I went to open AA meetings because that's my comfort zone. No one smokes anymore, number one. Number two, LA is filled with Pacific Group. They don't even swear, and they all look as dapper as Jake does. <laughs> I was like, where's the alcoholics? This is just not an AA meeting. This is like a lawyer convention or something. I don't see my mom. I don't see alcoholics. And I was pissed again. I was like, what is this? crap. And then I went to Al-Anon meetings. In fact, I may or may not have a book of Al-Anon meetings in Los Angeles from those years that has notes in it that says if I was wearing my hair up or down, if I was wearing glasses or not, what name I used, and if my tattoos were showing or not. I had been trained in Alatine to just say yes to any reasonable program request. And it was like trained in me, it was instinctive. So if you said, hey, could you take the literature bag home? I'd be like, yeah, Uh, no, no, I'm not in Al-Anon. And I wasn't going to have that, I wasn't going to be made a fool of. So yeah, I I audited Al-Anon. But, I mean, I would come after they did the steps. I knew the steps by heart. I knew the traditions. I knew the concepts and warranties. I didn't need that crap. I just wanted to hear the shares that had it harder than I did so that I could feel better about my world. Or vomit all over you guys with all my emotions to get my uh, glasses tuned, my prescription fixed. My disease is as progressive as yours. That wasn't very helpful because I would also leave before they drink the Kool-Aid or whatever they do. The little chant. Not my scene, guys. And, oh my gosh, has, you guys, do you guys know the Al-Anon suggested closing? We say things like, you, you'll find that you may not like all of us, but you'll come to love us. In a very special way, the same way we already love you. Special? Like the short bus special? Like, no, nope, uh uh-uh, uh, not going there. Ugh. And then something happened. gave up. I gave up trying to find a God that I could understand. And I decided to be rebellious and make fun of it. And I started calling it Waldo. Like, where's a Waldo? And I started seeing it. I mean, literally, I, my phone thing has Waldo on it. I've got a little Waldo here. I, not a day goes by, one of you people doesn't send me a Waldo meme to remind me I can't get away from it. And I started waking up in the morning early enough to not look at my to-do list, but to look at my gratitudes. I'm like, what is this? I'm not happy in my marriage, my kids are assholes. Why, why do I, I'm not grateful, why do I feel grateful? Why am I thankful that I have hot water? This is dumb, everybody has hot, but they don't. There was an old timer, A.A. Burke Harland, who was a spiritual powerhouse, and a friend of mine, um, Scott Lee, asked him, how he is who he is. and He's like, what do you mean? I I don't understand the question. Scott said, well, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? How do you live your life? He goes, well, first, when the alarm goes off, I'm thankful that I have an alarm clock and electricity. Then I'm thankful that I have carpeting to put my feet on as I walk to the bathroom. And I'm thankful that I have running water as I brush my teeth. I'm thankful I have a toothbrush. I'm thankful as I get into the shower that I have warm water. And shampoo. And that's how he lived his days. I had a really hard time with the big G word. There was a lot of connotations in the word God to me. And I had a real hard time using it. But somehow, Waldo made sense. I mean, think about it. if if you know anything about the Where's Waldo books, he travels through time and space. There is not a page of any book drawn by Martin Hanford that does not have Waldo on it. He starts them all with Waldo. There's no joke page that you can't find him. And I think it's kind of an allegory because I don't think there's a cloud that exists without a silver lining. And he's the silver lining. He's in everyone and everything, in every situation, in the freaking chair, in the belt around this. I just watched him appear. I didn't even know he was in the belt, but I knew. And it became my game to find him. What is that but praise and worship? But prayer, that was hard. So I started using using poetry. And there's a Mary Oliver poem called Praying. And she talks about how it doesn't have to be an elaborate thing. It's not a contest. You can use weeds and stones in a parking lot. Just string a few words together. They don't need to be elaborate. It's not a contest. But a doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. So at my home group, which, because I'm his favorite, happens to be the single oldest meeting on the West Coast. It's called the Arlington Group. And in fact, when Bill Wilson would go to visit Aldous Huxley, his friend out there with Lois, people would come out with their alcoholic, and they'd do a potluck or whatever, you know, buffet. And the non-alcoholics would stick around and clean up when the AAs went into their meeting. The secretary's bag of the Arlington Group had NAA papers in it because it was before Al-Anon was a thing. And at that meeting, there was this one man, Richard V, who wore a hat, much like Jake is wearing, and stuttered. And I keep notebooks because I'm intellectual. And so I would take notes at every meeting and write down things. And I could not stand when this guy would raise his hand because he would use his entire three minutes to say one sentence. He couldn't get it out. And I couldn't make sense of it. So I would keep myself busy and my mouth shut by writing down whatever he was saying. I spend the week between Christmas and New Year's, have for many years going through notebooks and rewriting my gems, God's gems that I've gotten, into this leather-bound book in calligraphy with fountain pens. That year, nine out of 10 things I wrote were by Richard V. And my favorite? was a poem, well, it's, it's a paragraph from a book by Richard Bach, who wrote Illusions and Jonathan Livingston Siegel, if you're old enough to know those. But this is from Running From Safety. And it became my prayer and my mantra. And this is, I don't even know, eight, nine, 10 years ago or so, maybe? And it goes, lean into your fears. Dare them to do their worst and cut them down when they try. If you don't, they'll clone themselves. They'll mushroom till they surround you and choke the road to the life you want. Every turn you fear is empty air, dressed to look like jagged hell. When the time comes to fight, I will be with you. And the weapon you need will be in your hand. And I prayed that, thoroughly, rigorously, wanting it to be true, not realizing it had already been true all of my life. It's not about the wolves in sheep's clothing. I mean, it's not about the sheep in wolves' clothing. It's about the wolves in sheep's clothing, or vice versa. I don't even know what I'm saying, but you know what I mean. All the things that scare me or disgust me or piss me off are wrapping paper for a gift that if I'm not ready to touch the wrapping paper, then I am sure not ready for what's inside because it's magical and mystical and kind of spooky. And I figure I may actually have nailed it on God's name and my idea of how he wraps my presence. I also think that avoidance might be the gift tag on the wrapping paper. So anything I avoid, I now have a reason to lean into. And so far, my hypothesis stands. And I dare every one of you. To prove me wrong, lean into something that you avoid or fear. Get to know somebody you really don't like or annoys you. I'll bet you, you will find a gift that will blow your mind. Today, I serve my favorite meeting where I get my meat. And I serve my least favorite meeting that I don't want to go back to until I get the gift. An old timer named Barbara from my area says this is a million dollar program you get one penny at a time I am way too demanding to wait for that so today I have a four-line serenity prayer and actually have for a long time God grant me the serenity to accept the courage to change and the wisdom to know the difference plus the patience to wait for your wisdom because I think data is my wisdom. If, and I'm hypervigilant. I see a lot. I think I know a lot when I see something. And if I don't see it, it's not real. It doesn't exist. Reality is upside down. God's world, where there are no mistakes, is absolutely the upside down world. And call me 11. And I forget my ego has a very short-term memory. It gets put in check with some miraculous thing. 25 minutes later, somebody calls me, and they have a tone of voice that bugs me. More miracles? No. If I don't take the pause, if I fill it with activity, I don't even get to know its wrapping paper, no less to open it to get the gift. One of the things I did when they called me from Hotel Killcrest to come and see my mom, the first thing I did was ask my daughter, who was 13, 12 at the time, I guess, if she'd like to go too fully hoping she was gonna say yes because I'd have to convince her otherwise. Remember how I wouldn't go to COTA without someone? You think I'm gonna go see my mom die without somebody? Oh well, if it's a 12-year-old kid, she can handle it, she's cool. She would probably tell you she's glad she went. She would also probably tell you that she was okay with me staying there for a month while my mom recovered was also probably okay with me going back there when after my mom finally got discharged from the last place she went back to Hotel Hillcrest less than three weeks later with alcohol poisoning and she would probably tell you that it was okay that when COVID hit that I decided I was prepared to do a living amends and take care of her till she's gone and when Cuyahoga County filed for legal guardianship and started a lawsuit in 2020, 2019-2020 and I wouldn't accept legal guardianship from LA to Cleveland. I decided I don't know that my mom's disease deserves to be punished. They were gonna lock her up and throw away the keys and not give her access to leave anytime she wanted to. They were gonna take her funds and give her what they thought she needed. That is not, my mom's never lived like that. And I don't think it's kind to take a woman with a traumatic brain injury, addiction. And I mean, her brain is pickled enough that they were able to put her skull back together after doing that operation with all the swelling. It looks like an avocado. Like like her brain is like the pit of an avocado. It's six millimeters shifted now because of the fall. And it's shriveled like, A cucumber gets shriveled into a pickle because it soaks in alcohol. And it felt when I would think about when I would put myself in her moccasins, it felt like like prisoner of war kind of stuff. To go from the lifestyle she's had to that didn't feel right. But I live in a fourplex in Los Angeles I've lived there for 20 years. My downstairs neighbor, 44 on the other side, 18 and nine years, respectively. People don't leave. I mean, it's where Paris Hilton would live if she lived in the ghetto. It is gorgeous, (laughs) and it's cheap, so people don't leave. The day that I was doing two-way prayer that morning, and that thought came to me that she'd be like a prisoner of war there in Cleveland. She would never be able to come and visit. We could go see her, but where were we going to stay? They were going to sell her house. My downstairs neighbors in my fourplex, not the one who'd been there 48 years, the other one, let me know they were moving out and going back home. And I prayed about it, and I talked to my husband and we hired a relocation service to go and pack up her entire house because she was in the hospital at the time in L.A. because she had been visiting us. And we moved everything in her huge house to this apartment. And I fit in as much as I could and made it look as much like her house as possible. Called Officer Mike Day and he took Einstein, her African gray parrot, She couldn't have dogs there because when you sign the lease it says you wouldn't have a dog over 20 pounds. She does have a Maine Coon Cat that's 32 pounds, however, because I'm still a rebel. (laughs) Um, She really does. Goose. Am I right at time? I'm not looking. Tell me to be quiet when it's time. When my mother first moved out, uh, we were doing Zoom, program on Zoom. And like many people, I was like, this isn't real program. Wrapping paper, silver lining. When I was a little girl, one of my most traumatic memories was I was supposed to go with the alatine area, like a bunch of areas in near Cleveland, Ohio, in a care van up to Stepping Stones, where Bill and Lois lived, New York, for Founders Day picnic, this big Al-Anon picnic. I was born in Ithaca, New York. My birthday is July 14th, and the picnic was like that week or week after or week before or whatever. My mom decided we'd go for my birthday and we'd drive up to Ithaca too and see the gorges. Maybe we'd go to New York and see a Broadway musical. Two months later, when it came time to take that trip, she fell off the wagon the night before. I didn't go. And I decided to um, uh, herald and Maud it, if anybody knows that reference. I was gonna kill myself in the most dramatic, messy, gory way so that when she woke up from being passed out, she would feel it. There were no cell phones. I couldn't call my sponsor any Alateen I knew. They were all in the vans. And I got a phone call from the cutest kid in Alatine, who was probably like 19 or something, I was like 10. And I was like, why is he calling me? This is cool. He said, you're not going to believe what you're getting for your birthday. OK, I can wait to kill myself till Tuesday when they get back. (laughs) They came to my house, and they gave me two presents. The first one I opened was a Sony Walkman, bright yellow. The first one, like early, like 81, 82, 83-ish. The other one was this big thing, and it was this white plastic box, like a Blockbuster video box that you had to pry open. And inside, there were 12 cassette tapes from Founder's Day. And they said, Mary Pearl T, North Little Rock, Arkansas. Okay. I popped them into that Sony Walkman put those things on my ears. And I heard me. I heard a person who has our disease and sounds a lot like an alcoholic and isn't. And she swore and she was reverently irreverent. And I fell asleep every single night for decades listening to that woman's voice. Fact. Miss Shapiro's voice is getting louder now, but for a long time it was Mary Pearl's voice. Kind of on both shoulders. Kind of the devil and the angel on my shoulder were both of her. (laughs) Sorry, Merp. Uh, The silver lining of COVID is every Monday afternoon, I study the big book with her. I thought she was dead. No, she's my friend. She's my teacher. She's my sister. All the people I grew up listening to, because people like Greg tape us, I can call. And they don't even have to like me, and they love me in a very special way. <laughs> we recently lost Butch, Larsen's husband. And I know Larsine and Earl and Butch because of their tapes and because they've spoken at Arlington for us as a family, and I wrote her a long message on the plane last night because I had sent her a book, and when I I didn't send it because it felt too Alan on and on and on, but it was all about how I bet you I'm going to see Butch to, when I talk. I bet I'm going to see him in so many people's eyes and hear him in so many people's voices. The first man I met when I arrived here today came up to me and shook my hand, and his name was Butch. And I immediately hit send on that long novel of a text that I wrote her. (sighs) Because I love Waldo. And I don't know if I'm an instigator or not. But I know that there's no mistakes, and I am not one. And frankly, I'm just not damn powerful enough to make a mistake or to do good. I'm fairly insignificant in the big picture, which gives me a lot of leeway to do things and to experiment. So I think my time is done. And I'm just going to tell you, for my 50th birthday, I got the privilege and honor of taping the Al-Anon International Convention. In Albuquerque and a girl asked me to sponsor her when I was there. The last day she went to get a tattoo and I haven't gotten one because I haven't needed to rebel since my 20s. And I got one. <laughs> and it says, every turn you fear is, jag- is empty air dressed to look like jagged hell. And the look is Waldo's glasses that's what I look through to see things including me today and I'm okay and I don't need to be great because I'm not awful I'm just me and that's perfect so thanks for letting me hang out with you guys and listening to me I don't feel like I'm behind a one-way mirror unless you guys are all there with me thanks for holding me up